Hi there, and welcome to the briefing room on this Friday. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein, joined here by Mary Alice Parks. And we can say it, it's going to be official uh, at midnight tonight, the longest shutdown in American history, a partial shutdown of the government extending. We can say it officially because Congress is gone for the weekend. They're not back until next week. There's really no action to speak of on Capitol Hill. And Mary Alice, this is a moment where we're starting to see some real pain felt, paychecks actually missed, federal workers missing that, and people starting to realize what it means not to have government services. You know who's still getting paid? Members of Congress. Ah. There are a few few members who have said that they are going to donate their paychecks to charity, but a lot haven't. They're going home this weekend, not doing their jobs, not keeping the government open, not reaching a compromise, but many of them getting paid when federal workers just aren't. And one interesting twist is that many of them are going to be flying home, which means they're going to be going to the airports, which means TSA lines, which means, as our David Curley has been reporting, maybe they have to wait a little bit longer. We've seen reports across the country about TSA so-called sick outs. We've got a portion of a terminal closed, at least in Miami. And David Curley is now joining us at, uh, at Washington's National Airport, where a lot of those members of Congress are, are headed to to head home. What is the scene like and what can travelers expect as a result of this partial shutdown? Well, I just saw a member of Congress actually walking through the terminal here, still had their little button on, tie off, but going home. Uh, the, the real problem are the TSA officers. This is the first Friday that they are not going to be paid. And these are, the salary is $30,000, $35,000, and a lot of them can't go much longer without getting a paycheck. And the fear among security experts and the TSA is that some of these officers will continue to call out, and some of them may just quit and go get another job in a full employment uh, economy like we have, that is quite possible. And we are seeing folks reaching out to these officers. There are reports that gift cards have been left by passengers. And look what we just saw five minutes ago. A representative of Southwest Airlines came right here to where we're standing with a cart and handed over uh, five, six, seven, eight pizzas for the TSO officers, the officers, the TSA officers, uh, to feed them, and they went to another checkpoint uh, where they're doing the same thing. Um, so there is an effort to try and help these officers, but the real concern, and I think this is where Americans, your average American, is going to feel the effects of this shutdown in the coming days is right here at these security lines. Two million Americans fly a day on average, and if these officers start to call out, if they quit, the lines are going to get longer because they are not going to change the security protocols. So with fewer officers, you will see longer lines. We're not seeing that here right now. Miami, though, is already making a change where tomorrow, half day, they're going to move, uh, consolidate some of their security lines and basically close down a terminal that isn't used that much on the weekends as a way to try and keep lines moving. So these are the things, and this is going to ramp up really quickly if some of these officers decide you know, I can't do this anymore. I've got to get another job, guys. And David, is there anything else that the airports can do in this? I mean, these are federal workers. So they're federally employed as, as TSA agents. Is there anything else that airports can do to try to mitigate this, maybe get extra bodies out there? Are, people, are there enough other people that would be there as replacements who are trained on what you have to do on these security lines? So what we've seen before when we had a real problem with lines in the past, the airlines have offered employees to help to do some of the jobs of moving bins that aren't really security related. Now, don't forget, these are not law enforcement officers. Each airport is controlled by either a local sheriff or police department. They're in charge of security. These folks are in charge of making sure that something doesn't get through the checkpoint and into the terminal area. So that's a possibility that the airlines could offer workers if it gets to the point where lines are getting very long. There's talk could 
already the administrator of the TSA says he's working to pay the officers if they worked on December 22nd, which was a Saturday, to try and get them some money if they, if they worked that day. Could you do retention bonuses? Could you offer them to go on unemployment while this is happening? All kinds of contingencies if this actually becomes the big problem that it could become. All right, David Curley over at uh, Washington's National Airport tracking the real-time developments. Congressmen are going to feel this pinch pretty directly. Uh, as we mentioned, um, this is payday. Uh, a lot of people are getting checks for zero dollars. Uh, we wanted to just show you some of this. Uh, this is a, a, a worker from the EPA, a chemist at the EPA, talking about what this shutdown means. To last, and everybody is hopeful that uh, uh, a, com uh, a, you know, a solution a compromise will be reached between Congress and the, the president, and uh, that will enable us to go back to our jobs. It's only 40 seconds. And just moments ago, uh, we're, we've heard President Trump talking. Take, we're going to dip in right now to President Trump talking about this, uh, this situation. I have the absolute right to do it. It says as clear as you can. Now, what will happen? I'll be sued. It'll be brought to the Ninth Circuit. And maybe even though the wording is unambiguous, just like with the travel ban, it'll be appealed to the Ninth Circuit, and we'll probably lose there, too, and then hopefully we'll win in the Supreme Court. But that's what happens. You can take the most perfectly worded document, as we have in this case, and they'll always bring it to the Ninth Circuit. And then you never know what's going to come out of the Ninth Circuit, and you never know what's going to come out on appeal. But fortunately, we have a Supreme Court that's treated us very fairly. So I'd rather not do it because this is something that Congress should easily do. This is something that the Democrats should do. And I don't want to give an easy way out of something as simple as this. Not only simple, it's easy and it's going to secure our country. You know, we have a, a country that is under siege. You could actually, you know, a lot of people don't like the word invasion. We have a country that's being invaded by criminals and by drugs, and we're going to stop it. So I want the Democrats to come back to Washington and vote. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good job yesterday. I appreciate your sales. I appreciate your sales. I didn't see an invasion at the border. Oh, you didn't? I know. That's because we had a wall. Actually, there were portions that didn't have a wall. And uh, the president leaning into this idea of a national emergency, thinking he has the, the power to do it. He knows that Congress isn't being here right now, isn't going to change anything because of the meetings. There's no negotiations going on right now. There's not like there's, there's some, some basis for them to even have these discussions. And clearly he's frustrated that Democrats have gone home, as he said, that Congress has adjourned. But also really acknowledging there the political and legal risk to this move. If he decides to declare a national emergency, he's saying that he understands it'll be brought up in the courts all almost immediately, and really the question of the jury is still out as to where exactly that would all end up. I want to bring our colleague uh, Trish Turner from Capitol Hill right now, where Capitol Hill is basically emptying out. 
Congress is gone. We know we're going to get into that record shutdown territory over the weekend. Uh, Trish, I'm struck by the, the conflicting advice that the president is getting from Republicans on Capitol Hill as to whether this national emergency is a good idea. It's a tough spot for Republicans who've been so skeptical about executive power when it's exercised by a Democrat. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so I caught up with Lisa Murkowski. This will give you one, uh, just one glimpse into what's happening within the Republican Party. Uh, no surprise, and you're well aware, they are deeply split on this issue. Um, but but uh, not even deeply split, I would say, but more, um, more of them feel like this is not a good idea. Um, they're split on the idea of whether it's legal or not. They know it's going to get tied up in courts. But when Lisa Murkowski and I just chatted um, for a while, she was saying, look, I'm really against this because of the precedent that it sets. I don't care what president is there. She even said, um, what if there's a President Sanders, Bernie Sanders, and he declares climate change a national crisis? You know, think of what he could do. Uh, gun control. What if there's somebody in and declares, you know, gun control a national crisis? Think what they could do. So she is sounding the alarm on that front. Marco Rubio, some of the more moderate members are, are with her um, in that spot. But she also said, look, this is going to get tied up in the courts. Uh, John Cornyn, a member of leadership, he said the same thing. It gets more and more complicated. But one thing Murkowski just told me I thought was interesting. She said, look, Trump really could end up in a lose-lose situation here. He could um, declare a national emergency. It could get tied up in court. And then he doesn't get the money anyway, because the court could tie up the money. So he could end up not getting what he wants, even if he does go this route. But I can tell you, most Republicans here are saying, Mr. President, don't go this route, because it also really complicates things here in Congress if he does it. And Trish, is there any movement on the idea of a funding compromise? It is unbelievable that we've barely even heard possible proposals uh, put on the table at all. Right. And, you know, it's so strange to me. Two days ago, you know, we, we all saw that incredible, uh, you know, moment when Democrats emerged from the White House and they said, you know, Trump just, President Trump just walked out. He slammed the desk and walked out. And, and so uh, really nothing has happened since then. Uh, behind the scenes, there was a small group, Lindsey Graham, a Trump ally, meeting with a group of other Republican senators. They were talking behind the scenes to a few Democrats. They were trying to come up with, like, maybe we could, you know, find some emergency supplemental money. Then we could pair it with some sort of a DACA fix. That's a key Democrat priority. Even Dick Durbin was saying, you know, God bless him, Lindsay's trying to find a solution, and I, you know, I'm all for it if he can find it. But then in the middle of everything, on Thursday, uh, Lisa Murkowski just told me she was in that group too. She said, we were all sitting in a lunch and we were talking about, we were all excited about maybe finding a solution. And then we got word that uh, President Trump wouldn't, wouldn't take it. He wouldn't sign it. So he told them no. Even when Vice President Pence, Jared Kushner were all, they were in these meetings at different times, uh, knew what was happening in these meetings. Jared Kushner was encouraging what was happening in these meetings. And then President Trump once again pulled the rug out from under them. So Lindsey Graham, he left a meeting. We caught up with him. He was so frustrated. He said, I'm done. I'm going to the gym. And then he put out a <laughs> statement saying, just call a national emergency. I, 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 we don't know what else to do. Well, at least the House gym and the Senate, uh, the, the congressional gym is still open, I guess, Trish. Uh, <laughs> yeah, throwing up their hands at the whole in, crisis. Indeed. Trish, we appreciate you uh, checking in uh, on this Friday with us. I uh, want to turn to Louis Martinez, our man at the Pentagon, because um, Louis has been reporting on some preparations that are going on through the military, through the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in particular, to to cope with and, and, and start to comply with a presidential declaration of a national emergency. Louis, what do you believe, what's your reporting show could the president could actually do with allocated funds?
Okay, I'm, I think we're having some problems with Louis' audio. So, so until we get that back, I, there, there's some talk of this. It would be an incomplete solution. And a, a political question. Do members of the military, do active uh, troops want to spend their time? Did they sign up to build a wall? I think we're going to continue to get some political questions if he goes that I route. I think we've got Louis back. Louis, if you, can, if you can answer the question for us of what the president would be able to do through the military, through money that's already been allocated. Thanks, guys. Uh, so, Rick, what we're talking about is U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. They undertake large projects nationwide. We're talking about building of dams and maintenance of levees, uh, big projects, rerouting of rivers, and in Puerto Rico, uh, disaster relief. That's really what they're known for. In this case, what the White House is directing the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to do is look at one particular fund, $13.9 billion that has been allocated by the Congress for long-term disaster relief projects. That includes things like Hurricane Harvey relief, Puerto Rico uh, relief. It includes um, situations from, from related to the forest fires in California, even uh, w flooding in West Virginia. Now, we're talking about very large accounts. Some of this money is specifically dedicated. We're talking about 57 projects that have been dedicated specifically by Congress. Um, and what the White House is looking from the Army Corps of Engineers is to take a look at where you can might be able to shift some of that money and potentially use it towards the construction of at least a segment of the wall. Now, one official told us that it could be potentially as much as 315 miles of wall uh, that could be funded if, if, if with the $5 billion that the administration is looking for. Um, but it's uncertain to us right now specifically how much of an option this really is for the White House, because ultimately it's going to come down to has the money been spent, is that money truly available, and can it be used uh, within the time frame that the White House is looking for. And of course, as members of Congress will point out, it's money that was intended for something else. Louis Martinez over at the Pentagon, we appreciate your reporting uh, today. I want to move on, Mary Alice, to uh, the fallout of some comments from Congressman Steve King, a Republican from Iowa. He's had a long history of making comments that are, to say the least, racially charged. Uh, but in particular, an interview that he gave earlier this week to the New York Times has been making some very big headlines. Uh, he said in part, quote, white nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization, how did that language become offensive? Why did I sit in classes teaching me about the merits of our history and our, our civilization? Uh, we have seen some, some pretty staggering fallout from this. Uh, Senator Tim Scott, the only African-American Republican in the Senate, said this needs to be called out because it's racist and you have to call it out as racist. And that words matter. Senator Scott said that words are dangerous and basically that in 2019 we should understand that, that words have power and that, uh, that the Republican Party needed to, to address this. Tim Scott stopped short of laying out a proposal for how the Republican Party should exactly respond, but basically said enough is enough. Enough is enough and uh, this, the Congressman King was on the House floor today, in part delivering uh, an explanation, saying he made a, a, what he calls a freshman mistake in talking to the New York Times. He says his comments were taken out of context uh, and that... And he is not a freshman and he's been uh, accused <laughs> really of this point. before. He's been, he's been around the block before and, and this actually feels very consistent with past statements of his. He did apologize there on the floor, but, uh, but, but again, doubled down on this idea of being a nationalist um, and it's... it's it's a lot of language that most Americans do not feel comfortable with. And I think you're seeing a growing number of Republicans say that. We remember during the campaign when the chairman of the National Republican Congressional Committee stepped, stepped aside from saying he'd support Steve King. Steve King ended up narrowly winning. Now there's at least two primary challengers mm -hmm. in the mix. Uh, Jeb Bush, among others, um, are, are those among those saying that Steve King needs to be beaten in a Republican primary if he doesn't step aside on his own. And be curious to see the president when he reacts to this because he's been a big supporter of Congressman King and King uh, likewise. And how the party reacts, what they do in terms of funding or support. 
Uh, great. Uh, big big weekend of 2020 action, Mary Alice, as we love to cover. Uh, tomorrow, Julian Castro, down in his hometown of San Antonio, is expected to announce his candidacy for president. He's already gone to the exploratory committee. How, what's your sense on, on how this shapes the race if Castro gets in? Well, uh, also, Elizabeth Warren is in yeah. New Hampshire. She was in Iowa last weekend. Julian Castro making the rounds in those early states as well. I think we're seeing a really accelerated timetable. People have noticed that Julian Castro and Elizabeth Warren are benefiting by being the only ones out in these states right now. Uh, there's a few others don't have the same name ID. And uh, everyone's anticipating a really crowded field in March and April and May. There's going to be a lot of folks trekking around uh, just a few cities. And so there's some benefit, perhaps, to being in early. Some news from Beto O'Rourke. He hasn't said much other than to his dentist, I guess, in uh, in uh, in online forums. That was it's a hard little, to talk like that. A little gross, uh, but he is going to be interviewed by Oprah next month. That I think that'll get a couple eyeballs. It will get a couple eyeballs. A lot of buzz around him. People are excited about that generational shift in the Democratic Party. He seems to represent uh, something newer and fresher. Obviously, a lot younger than some of the other frontrunners. And if you needed a sign that 2020 really is upon us, you're going to have physical office space opened up by John Delaney, the former. Congressman from Maryland. He's a declared candidate for president. He was the first in the race. He's been working this pretty hard. It's unbelievable just how early this is. But of course, it's not that early for John Delaney. He's been driving around Iowa uh, basically for the last year, even has a campaign bus. There he is talking to our Brad Milkey in his hometown in New Jersey. But John Delaney, yes, opening up the first campaign offices of the 2020 cycle in Iowa this weekend. And, you know, he gets to benefit in some way from being straightforward with the Iowa voters. He was not coy. From the beginning, he has said he is in it. He's not, not playing that sort of funny dance. He's not being shy about his intentions, and, and that could really help him. And uh, a note today on the Supreme Court, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, RBG, the, the film, the biopic about her going in wide release just today, and an unusual statement from the Supreme Court today. Uh, earlier this week, she missed the first arguments of her entire career in the court, first time in a quarter century, and a statement for the Supreme Court today saying that she is cancer-free, that, uh, that all of the tests have come back clean, she's going to require some more time recovering. I was just struck by the fact that this statement had to be released at all. There's mm -hmm. been some buzz and speculation about her health, and it's seemed seemed like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, through the court, wanted to quell that as much as they could. Well, sure. She went, uh, underwent pretty serious surgery. And, you know, you really feel like Democrats, after uh, what she has come to represent for them, but also that, that brutal Supreme Court fight with Brett Kavanaugh just last year, uh, you can feel this tension in the Democratic Party about a moment where she might um, not be able to continue to do her job. I've seen online uh, people volunteering to donate lungs to keep RBG <laughs> in her seat. The left is very worried about this. No further treatment required at this time, according to this statement from the Supreme Court. Uh, well, part of our Friday series, I love these, Mary Alice, because I'm a history buff, but uh, these are really cool. Our colleague, Ali Rogan, has been traveling uh, to congressional offices, talking to members of Congress about some of the more famous people that used to occupy the, the offices. So for this week's ed edition, uh, Ali caught up with Senator Mike Lee from Utah, who occupies an office that used to be used by none other than Richard Nixon. Take a look. Hey there, I'm ABC's Allie Rogan on Capitol Hill. We're in the historic Russell Senate office building. I'm with Kate Scott, Senate historian. This office now belongs to Senator Mike Lee of Utah, but it used to belong to Richard Nixon, right? Right, of California. He had a relatively short congressional career, but it was during that short period of time that he served in Congress, two terms in the House, 
and he was just uh, into his third year during his first Senate term when he was selected to be um, vice presidential candidate with uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Shortly after he won the election for Senate, some of his friends created a little campaign fund for him that he could use to pay for some of his expenses. It wasn't actually against the law. The problem was that it sort of undermined his credentials as a fierce, um, anti-corruption advocate, you know, as someone who promoted good government and wanted to reduce waste in government. He was making the case in this checker speech to the American public and saying, I'm like one of you, we're a young family, we don't make a lot of money, we try to be frugal. And then he mentions this little dog. It was a little cocker spaniel dog. He says, you know, we've got these gifts, we've received some of these gifts. One of the gifts that we've received is this cute little dog, which one of our daughters has named Checkers. And by gosh, we're not going to give Checkers back. Regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. The American public responded very favorably and said, he's just like one of us. We understand. He got himself into a bit of trouble, but he's come clean. We like him. And Eisenhower was deeply impressed with the speech, and it convinced him that he needed to stay on the ticket. Well, thanks so much, Kate. You're really welcome. appreciated this Absolutely. tour of Senator Richard Nixon's office. You might think of that as an early viral moment, that the, the, the country was relating to Richard Nixon in a different way. There's, there's interesting echoes, I think, in that checker speech uh, in what we learned today. Humanizing him. Uh, man, we talk about dogs like every, <laughs> every president since. We talk about dogs, but today we're going to talk about beer to end our show because this is a, this is because it's Friday because it's Friday and it's a precious story. And Congressman Joe Cunningham, he just got to Congress, a Democrat from South Carolina, and it's a Friday. And hey, you know, it's been a long week. Uh, he brought a six pack of beer or tried to bring a six pack of beer onto the House floor today. Unfortunately, that is against the House rules, uh, and he did not actually succeed in getting that six pack onto the onto the floor. Um, we're told, as you can see, it was removed by <laughs> by officers. Uh, we're told that the the six pack was not meant for consumption on the House floor. Mary Alice, he was going to bring it to a colleague as an example of some of South Carolina's finest brews, and thought that was the best chance, the only chance he'd seen before he headed to the airport. We're told that it did get to its uh, to its intended recipient. Uh, but um, how about that Joe six pack image? <laughs> I mean, you can see why some new freshman members are a little bored up on Capitol Hill. You know, they get elected, the government's shut down, what can they do? Have a beer. I mean, you want to talk about Congress being relatable. I think we can, I all, we can all understand that. All right, that does it for this edition of The Briefing Room on this Friday. Thank you for joining us. For Mary Alice Parks, I'm Rick Klein. You can check us out all week long at abcnews.com. Thank you for watching.